Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, the latest on Venezuela, as all eyes are on the Biden administration to see if he will continue the previous administration's efforts at regime change and to regain U.S. control and influence in that oil-rich nation. This, even as European Union states have now withdrawn their recognition of Juan Guaido as interim president of Venezuela. In 2018, Juan Guaido had declared himself president despite the fact that Venezuela already had a democratically elected president, Nicolas Maduro. What is the situation now given the recent election results in Venezuela? What is the impact of COVID-19 on that nation and what steps is the government taking to confront the austerity imposed in part as a result of U.S. and EU sanctions. Our guest is Ricardo Vaz with Venezuela Analysis. Nana Jumphy joins us to discuss what is going on with Black immigrants in the United States and deportations and to report on the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. Nana Jumphy is one of the commissioners of the inquiry. She is an attorney and executive executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as BAJI. And we remember Rudy Salas, founding member of the Chicano R&B band Tierra, who passed away on December 29th, 2020. We speak with his brother, Steve Salas, who co-founded Tierra with Rudy. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The Senate will consider more of President Biden's cabinet nominees today. Among them are former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg for Transportation Secretary, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm for Energy Secretary, and former Obama White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough for Veterans Affairs Secretary. The Biden administration is almost a week old and so far has four cabinet-level appointees confirmed after having fewer hearings before Inauguration Day than recent predecessors. Throughout the transition, the Biden team stressed the need to be ready to govern on day one amid the coronavirus pandemic and economic recession, and then after the deadly riots at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. There are about 4,000 political appointee positions in the government, about 1,250 of which require Senate confirmation. Biden has named interim leaders to serve while the appointees await confirmation. The Democrats have a slim majority in the Senate, which bodes well for Biden's confirmation progress. Biden's Treasury, State, and Defense Secretaries and Director of National Intelligence are confirmed. Key positions like U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and the Council of Economic Advisers Chair are awaiting confirmation hearings. President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke by phone Tuesday for the first time since Biden took office. 
They reportedly discussed the detention of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny and Russian interference in democratic elections. But the main focus was the status of nuclear arms agreements between the two countries, which are set to expire soon. Russian lawmakers have quickly approved the extension of the last remaining nuclear Russia-U.S. arms control agreement. It's a fast-track action that comes just days before it's due to expire. Both houses of parliament voted unanimously today to extend the new START treaty for five years. The Kremlin said they agreed to complete the necessary extension procedures in the next few days. The pact's extension doesn't require congressional approval in the U.S., but Russian lawmakers must ratify the move, and Putin is set to sign the relevant bill into law. President Biden announced Tuesday that his administration will order another 200 million doses of coronavirus vaccine that would arrive this summer. That would raise the total to 600 million and ensure the U.S. will eventually have two shots of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for nearly every American. Biden says his goal is to get at least 100 million Americans vaccinated by summer, an effort he says will start immediately. I can announce that we will increase overall weekly vaccination distributions of states, tribes, and territories from 8.6 million doses to a minimum of 10 million doses. Starting next week, that's an increase of 1.4 million doses per week. The slight uptick to 10 million in the next three weeks had been expected as vaccine makers slowly expand supply and the U.S. government already had the option to buy more doses under existing contracts. Under President Trump, the U.S. government had already agreed to buy 200 million doses from Pfizer and 200 million from Moderna, which were to be, to, which were to be delivered by July. The European Union's dispute with Anglo-Swedish drug maker AstraZeneca has intensified with the company denying the EU's assertion that it had pulled out of talks on vaccine supplies. AstraZeneca said that it still planned to meet with EU officials in Brussels later today. Future Story News' Lucy Hoff reports from Brussels. Brussels has described the delay in the delivery of its COVID-19 vaccines as unacceptable and is now demanding greater transparency on exports outside of the EU of vaccine doses produced in Europe. AstraZeneca has defended itself against the criticism, saying the manufacturing glitches in Europe that have led to the shortages are in part down to the timing of the EU deal, which was signed three months after that of the UK. Pascal Soriet, AstraZeneca's CEO, said his company is not taking taking vaccines from Europeans to sell them elsewhere around the world at a profit. Lucy Hoff, Brussels. The international debate over taxing big tech is heating up. Officials from more than 130 countries are meeting online as part of an international negotiation. They're looking at ways to tax activities by companies like Google, Amazon, and Facebook when those companies make money in a country but don't have a physical presence there. Officials working with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development hope to find one international solution everyone can agree on. That could head off unilateral taxes imposed by France and other countries that are threatening to spark a trade war with the United States. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, despite multiple economic, political, social, and public health crises plaguing the United States, uh, Donald Trump's war hawks, they continue to seek regime change in Venezuela well into 2020. 
However, now that President Joe Biden is in office, many are wondering if U.S.-Venezuela relations can improve. On Saturday, January 23rd, the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, said he was willing to turn the page with President Biden, calling for a new path after years of tension with Trump's White House. Now, after Joe Biden won the U.S. presidential election in November, Nicolas Maduro congratulated him, saying Venezuela was ready for dialogue and good understanding with the people and government of the United States. Biden's administration, however, doesn't seem to be as open to cooperating with the Venezuelan president. On Tuesday, January 19th, Anthony Blinken, uh, who is now has been confirmed as Biden's secretary of state, said Biden's administration will continue to recognize Juan Guaido as the country's president. Keep in mind that Juan Guaido basically declared himself president back in 2018, despite the fact that Venezuelans had elected uh, Nicolas Maduro. Keep in mind that Blinken is also an old member of the Obama administration, having served first as Vice President Biden's national security advisor from 2009 to 2013, deputy national secretary advisor from 2013 to 2015, and then as United States deputy deputy secretary of state from 2015 to 2017. Blinken had uh, immense influence over Biden in his role as deputy national security advisor, helping to formulate Biden's approach and support for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Biden, uh, Blinken seems to be of the view that it is up to the United States and only the United States to take charge of world affairs. So there's a lot of concern about what that might mean for the uh, Biden's foreign policy uh, generally. Following the election of Hugo Chavez in 1999, Washington and other Western forces have made several attempts to undermine Venezuela's Bolivarian um, re revolution and republic named after the independence hero, Simon Bolivar. In 2002, under former President George W. Bush, there was a failed U.S.-backed coup against Hugo Chavez. In 2015, under former President Barack Obama, the United States declared Venezuela to be a national security threat, imposing sanctions against seven officials. Since 2017, when Donald Trump, with Donald Trump in office, the United States regime change operations against Venezuela have been in over drive. Not only did uh, Trump's government slap multiple economic sanctions on Venezuela, including an oil embargo, it also sought to topple Venezuela's democratically elected government by violent force. Before he died, uh, Hugo Chavez helped to establish progressive institutions across Latin America and the Caribbean that promoted regional unity and development. Petro Caribe, for example, is an oil alliance that uh, the late President Chavez helped to create which has 18 Caribbean member states. It was founded in 2005 in Venezuela, offering the other member states oil supplies on generous financial terms, including 1% interest. 
around the same period, Hugo Chavez also helped to establish the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America, known as ALBA. It is an intergovernmental organization based on the idea of social, political, and economic integration of the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean. Hugo Chavez founded this alongside Cuban president, uh, now the late Fidel Castro. Venezuela has also helped to create uh, CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which consists of 32 sovereign countries in the Americas. Now, since the election of Hugo Chavez, the mainstream media in the United States have just regurgitated, it seems, talking points from the U.S. State Department. They seem to have uh, that whatever happens in Venezuela, whoever the uh, if the president, whether it's Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro, that Venezuela and their presidency have to be um, portrayed in the most negative light. Let us go for an example from CNN reporting on poverty in Venezuela. Keep in mind, this is <laughs> the United States where right now you see miles and miles of cars lining up to just get a box of food. Let's go to the report now from CNN. Life has come to a standstill for many on the streets of Caracas, Venezuela. After decades of corruption, economic pain and violence, the pandemic's now robbing many here of even a minimal income, intensifying one of Venezuela's most pronounced ailments, extreme hunger. Celestina Rondon tells me she lost both her boys to gun violence 16 years ago, shot just a few streets away from her home. There was so much war, they killed without mercy, she says. Today she's fighting a different battle, trying to make her $1 pension amid hyperinflation last the month. I eat bologna, rice and sausages, if there's any, she says. Today, there isn't much. She has, what, three sausages, a tiny bit of rice up here, frozen water, um, and then if I open here, she's got plantain, and leftovers that are now swarming flies. Water, too, is in short supply here, a result of Venezuela's deteriorating infrastructure after decades of mismanagement under Presidents Hugo Chávez and Nicolás Maduro. The little that does flow out, she uses to fill these up. Avoiding COVID-19 is the last thing on her mind. When there's water, we store it so it lasts. And when there's money, we buy bottled water, she says. Down the road, I meet 80-year-old Francisca de Sapia, who behind her smile hides a world of pain. She tells me she has no fridge, broken as a result of blackouts that have plagued the country more frequently over the last few years. She shares this house with her two sons, and here resignation adorns its every corner. A report last year found that 96% of Venezuelans are living in poverty. 96% of Venezuelans living in poverty, a report. It doesn't say 
which report this, of course, uh, CNN. I would now like to welcome our guest, Ricardo Vaz, writer and editor at Venezuela Analysis, an independent website produced by individuals who are dedicated to disseminating news and analysis about the current political situation in Venezuela. Ricardo is, of course, based in on the ground in Venezuela. Ricardo Vaz, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so um, before we talk about the reality of the situation on the ground and your reaction uh, to that uh, CNN clip, um, President Maduro talked about basically trying to have a reset um, with the new Biden administration. And just yesterday, on um, Tuesday, January 26, at the White House uh, press briefing, Jen Psaki said that the overriding goal of U.S. policy in Venezuela is to see a peaceful transition of power through free and fair elections. Uh, she said, quote, um, that the Biden administration will focus on addressing the humanitarian situation, providing support to the Venezuelan people, and reinvigorating multilateral diplomacy to press for a democratic outcome and pursue individuals involved in corruption and human rights abuses. Um, just your reaction to that. Yes, so as you were saying in the introduction, there was a bit of expectation following such a belligerent foreign policy towards Venezuela from the Trump administration. What could we expect from the Biden administration, right? And in a way, we could more or less foresee what was coming, simply by the fact that uh, most of the characters are from the Obama administration. You mentioned the, the Obama executive order from 2015 declaring Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security. You know, besides the the, the fact that it's a very strong and equally absurd statement. This is the, what lays the, the legal basis. You can call it like that because you know, many people argue that sanctions are illegal. This is the basis for sanctions. And so this decree was renewed consecutively by, by Obama and, and then by Trump. So if Biden wanted to, to revert this, he would actually be reverting an Obama decree and not something that, that was produced by, by the Trump administration. And then uh, the signs got clearer and clearer. What, what you were saying about uh, Anthony Blinken, this was um, some, some meeting in the Senate. And when he said uh, that uh, the, Trump, the, sorry, the Biden administration was going to speak with Guaido, who proclaimed himself uh, almost two years, a little over two years ago, exactly on January 23rd, 2019, he also said something that was a bit more revealing, at least in my opinion, which was that uh, the, the new administration was going to, to look at ways to make sanctions, uh, quote-unquote, more and more effective. So not, not just are they going to stick with, uh, with the self-proclaimed and kind of uh, parallel government attempts, they're also going to, to stick with, with sanctions, which have had uh, a devastating effect on the economy and then, of course, in turn, on, on, on the lives of, of every of everyone. So uh, if you want to go back to that CNN report, of course the 96% poverty, and these are absurd numbers that come out from either NGOs or uh, writing universities and so on. And of course, that, that's not, the number is not correct. Which is to say that, uh, you know, most Venezuelans and the large majority is not going through uh, extreme hardships at this point. And largely as a result of, of, of U.S. sanctions, which have really decimated 
Um, Ricardo, let me just pause for a moment because I want to make sure that you're, I, I know you're speaking from overseas directly into the cell phone. We're, we're just having a little bit of uh, sound issues, uh, sound issues here. But um, again, before getting into... Right. Before getting into the actual situation and, and the, you know, the, the, the CNN uh, report, uh, back, though, to the situation, there was a, a, an election in Venezuela recently. I'd like you to talk about the outcome of it. And, of course, um, the just a, a day or so ago, uh, the European states have said that they no longer recognize Juan Guaido as Venezuelan's interim president, uh, given the outcome of the recent uh, elections that happened. So tell us about the elections and uh, the implication, the wider implication of e European states no longer recognizing Juan Guaido, but the United States and the UK are still holding on to their recognition of him as interim president of Venezuela, even though he was never elected, uh, someone else was, Nicolas Maduro. Um, your thoughts on this, Ricardo Vaz? Yes. Th those two things are connected. So Venezuela held legislative elections in, on December 6th last year. And this was for to elect a new national assembly for a new five-year term, which began on, on January 5th. And on, on these elections, the, the U.S. backed opposition, you know, headlined by Guaido, decided to boycott the process. They argued that it was fraudulent and so on, and so they, they declined to participate. And so the, the Venezuelan government, or the pro-government alliance, won an overwhelming majority and took back control of the, the country's parliament, which had been won by the opposition in 2015. And this has implications on, on the European Union decision, because Juan Guaido's self-proclamation uh, two years ago uh, hinged on the fact that he was the president of the National Assembly. Uh, regardless of that, there, there was no basis for his, for his self-proclamation. The interim presidency position doesn't even exist in the Venezuelan constitution. But in terms of, of the legal argument and Moreover, the media argument was that you know, since he was the president of the National Assembly, he was entitled to do this because they did not recognize the 2018 elections in which Maduro won. Uh, he was elected for a second term. So now, since there were elections for the National Assembly, which even the European Union uh, has qualms with, they, they say that uh, you know the process of defense won. Uh, regardless of that, they, they say that uh, you know, the previous National Assembly term has, has expired, and as a result, Whatever basis they had for the uh, interim presidency is no longer there, and so they will they will no longer uh, refer to Guaido as interim president, even though they still consider him as a privileged actor, a privileged dialogue counterpart, and so on. Uh, what was Guaido did, you know, parallel to not taking part in, in the elections, was to come up with a, a bit of an artificial. Artificial trick, which was to expand, uh, of course, it has no legal basis, but the, the, the opposition's outgoing parliament voted to extend its term at least for another year. So to continue in office, even though they are not really in office. And so that's uh, kind of the legal trick on this side, which then allows the United States to say, you know, why is still in place, he's still recognizing. And the United Kingdom, since now they're out of the, of the European Union, they can also. Differently with, with their foreign policy. 
So that's my lesson things are right now. We have to ask, you know, uh, Jen Psaki comment yesterday that, uh, you know, regime change is still very much the, the Biden administration's goal. No, taking that into account, we have to ask if uh, the Guaido uh, parallel administration, quote-unquote, is their best bet to achieve it. So they might, uh, you know, change change course at some point, simply by the fact that they don't see this as their most, uh, the, the option that gives them the most chances of success. But for now, at, at least they're, they're not going to reverse the, the Trump administration's position on Venezuela. Well, let me let me ask you this as well, because we know that the recognition of Guaido meant that um, he was able to access funds that basically belonged to the Venezuelan government. The UK held on to I don't even know how much worth of, of, of gold. Um, in the United States, they have also basically taken over uh, CITCO, which is connected uh, to Venezuela in the United States. So there's all of that going on. And then there is much being made of the level of poverty in Venezuela. You started earlier to refer to the statistic they gave of 96% of Venezuelans living in poverty, but also in relation to the elections. Now, I was a monitor for elections, a few elections under uh, President Hugo Chavez, and didn't see, I mean, it was a free and fair election, but it seems whatever election happens on Venezuela, in Venezuela, if it is a win for the Bolivarian uh, revolution that the United States and Europe says, oh, discrepancies, it's, it wasn't a fair election, it was a stolen election. Um, can you give us your thoughts, one, on the, on the Venezuela elections and, uh, you know, have people confirmed, have others confirmed that those elections were uh, free and fair? And uh, I'm wondering also if the EU no longer recognizing Guaido, if that means that um, the government of Venezuela would have access to resources that rightfully belong to the government of Venezuela. Uh, Ricardo. Uh, yes. So regarding elections, there were uh, several organizations and, and individuals coming from abroad to observe the election, and there was a, a report from the Standard International Commission of, of Electoral Service who confirmed that uh, the elections were, were free and fair. They had no no issues, no doubts about uh, the validity of the results. And, you know, as someone who was here, you know the, how how foolproof the Venezuelan system is, and there are lots of checks and balances. There are lots of bodies in place to precisely... Uh, stop any, any, any fraud attempts. We didn't say that, that they're not possible, but they're not straightforward. And this, this ties to, to, the, to the coverage we've seen of elections over the years. So basically, as you were saying, every election that uh, the Bolivarian uh, process has won uh, has been labeled as fraud, and sometimes ahead of time. So, for example, in the 2015 elections, which the opposition won, the, the media coverage was more or less that, you know, the opposition is the majority, but there will be fraud. And then, of course, the opposition won, and, and the media didn't really know what to do. But, but in, in most recent processes, since the, the hardline opposition called that has boycotted, the media has gone to lengths of uh, you know proclaiming ahead of time that the elections are going to be falling, you know, even before the, the votes are cast. But in this case, yes, there was a, a report from the International Commission, which uh, 
on the elections that have been said. The Venezuelan government actually invited the European Union and the United Nations to send observation teams, but you know, since in the middle of the, the diplomatic tensions, they, they chose not to. Going back to to the issue of the of the EU recognition or non recognition, uh, yes, the matter of recognizing Guaido is beyond uh, a diplomatic position. You know, it, it's about having control of these assets because uh, this was litigated in, in, in U.S. courts and in the United Kingdom as well, that uh, the assets have to be transferred to whoever the, the U.S. government or the, or the U.K. government decides is the legitimate uh, representative of the Venezuelan people. So there was a case with the, with the $1.5 billion was called the United Kingdom and several assets in, in, the, in the United States, not just crypto, but also bank accounts. As for the implications of the, of the European Union's decision, I don't think it's going to mean uh, Venezuela will have access to, to its resources straight away, because uh, there are still sanctions against against against, uh, against Venezuela, and there's no chance, yeah. no no sign that they're going to change any time soon. So I wouldn't expect any, any reversal in in terms of, of that policy. Right, what, and what, and just the question about the third. Yeah, just, just well, I'll, I'll get back to that. Uh, just finally, because we really are kind of out of time for this segment, Ricardo uh, Vaz. Um, now, we do know, I, I spent some time um, in Venezuela and remember the, the sloping hillsides. We know that poverty exists. We know extreme poverty exists <clears throat> in Venezuela. Um, it, a lot is made of it, <clears throat> excuse me. Also, we know that there's poverty and extreme poverty as well in the United States. Uh, however, um, the Western media, the media in the United States don't quite play it up the way they do in Venezuela. And we also know that uh, certainly under Hugo Chavez, he was really trying to uh, control what he inherited. I mean, a whole uh, system of corruption that had been <clears throat> embedded and, and he was really trying to, to to, to deal with it. I know less about what is happening with the Maduro administration, but tell us a little bit about if you think that 96% is accurate and just also finally on uh, COVID-19, the impact and what the Venezuelan government has been doing about it. Yes, yeah, so the 96% figure is uh, obviously not, not correct. I, don't, I wouldn't have an estimate for how much it is. What I would say is that poverty and, ex and extreme poverty came down to all-time low uh, under Hugo Chavez, so around 2012-2013, and they continued to, to decrease in the first years of the Maduro administration. But then with the, there was a global fall of oil prices and then sanctions. This meant that the economy has gone into into a very sharp decline. I mean, GDP has contracted by some 60% in the past six years. So it really is a very complicated situation, which has meant uh, lots of hardship for the majority of the Venezuelan people. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that uh, the government is, is just sitting idly by. I mean, I have, I have a lot, lots of people have criticisms of the government policy, but the government has tried to a certain extent to social programs to try and at least secure some a minimal basis for the for the most exposed sectors. For example, there's a program of subsidized food that 
reaches some six million families, and that that offers them kind of a minimal basis uh, for for survival. I mean, it sounds very dire, but but that's my situation. That that's not reflected on income. So if you were to talk about income, of course, salaries have been pulverized with uh, with the speculation around the, the 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 currency and so on, and so most people cannot live on with, with the, the wages that they would get, I don't know, working in public administration. But there have been other kinds of uh, escape calls, you know, either people who have uh, emigrated and planned remittances or some kind of flourishing businesses that have emerged, uh, yeah. sometimes in, in shadowy fashion. But, you know, the, the economy has found ways to improvise, but it's still a very dire situation, and it, it, it cannot improve as long as it's... Uh, crushing weight of sanctions is in place. Right. And, uh, um, I'm afraid, um, uh, yes, oh. quickly on COVID-19, because we are out of time. Yeah, so, so on COVID-19, it's a bit of a mystery, but Venezuela has done much better than, than neighboring countries, even though the healthcare system has also been very hard, hardly hit by, by sanctions. The government taking action very early, and uh, kind of a vision on healthcare that's more community-based and has allowed them to tackle cases much more efficiently than, than other countries in the region. But at the same time, uh, sanctions and, and other unilateral measures from the U.S. and, and European Union have made the fight against COVID-19 much more difficult. And in recent days, we had a, a report that the Venezuelan government wanted to use some of these frozen funds to buy vaccines, and they were not allowed. Right. Okay. Well, on that note, we are going to have to leave it there. We appreciate you, uh, Ricardo Vaz, joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we, okay. We are going to take a station break. And, and coming up, waiting to speak with us, Nana Jamfi, uh, as well as Steve Salas, who will be talking about the life and legacy of his now late brother, uh, Rudy Salas. Together, they founded uh, the band out of East L.A., uh, Tierra. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Together by uh, Tierra. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today in the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in France. We are going to go to our weekly Earth Minute and coming up to speak with us, Nana Jamfi. Shair Bolsonaro 
nicknamed the Trump of the Amazon, may be brought before the International Criminal Court in The Hague for his role in promoting and sanctioning ecocidal and genocidal actions in the Amazon rainforest. According to Agence France Presse, two Amazon chiefs have accused Bolsonaro of crimes against humanity for unprecedented environmental damage, killings, and persecution. The complaint to the ICC states that deforestation in the Amazon has increased by 34.5% in one year, the assassination of indigenous leaders is at an 11-year high, and environmental agencies have collapsed or faced threats. One chief told AFP that Bolsonaro was using the COVID crisis to eliminate indigenous peoples. Even now, Brazil's president is pushing to open up the Amazon to oil and gas development, mining, and industrial agriculture. Attempts to hold Bolsonaro accountable are also coming from outside Brazil. The Maldives, a small island nation slowly sinking under rising seas, charges destruction of the Amazon and dangers the entire planet due to its critical role in stabilizing the climate. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Ann Peterman from Global Justice Ecology Project. And... And this is Margaret Prescott. We are now going to uh, turn our attention to anti-black racism against uh, African migrants, as well as what is happening with the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence against people of African descent in the United States. Um, Before welcoming our guests, just to share some recent background on immigration with the new President uh, Biden dispatch despite the fact that as vice president, Joe Biden oversaw a huge spike in deportations. Indeed, among some, President Obama was known as deep Uh, deporter-in-chief. But since taking office, President Joe Biden has taken action on defending immigrants in the United States. He's promised during his campaign to pause most deportations, well, but just for 100 days. However, on Tuesday, January 26, a federal judge, a recent Trump appointee in Texas, temporarily blocked the Biden administration's halt on deportations. U.S. District Judge uh, Drew Tipton issued a temporary restraining order sought by Texas, which uh, sued on Friday against a Department of Homeland Security memo that instructed immigration agencies to pause most deportations. Um, So uh, there you go. The moratorium had only been in place for five days. So other things that uh, Biden has done, um, he has Uh, promised far-reaching changes to the U.S. immigration system, including a plan to provide legal status to an estimated 100 million undocumented immigrants. His proposals also include expanded refugee resettlement and more technology deployed to the border. Well, we'll see what that means. He's also halted um, work on Trump's wall. Um, He is leaving uh, to Congress to hash out the mechanics of passing his immigration plan while he's moving ahead with a series of executive uh, orders. Among the orders in the works are one that restores asylum protections and another that creates a task force to reunify families separated at the border. 
uh, to discuss this and specifically to discuss what's happening with immigrants of African descent across the nation of Mexico, thousands of African and African descended immigrants from Nigeria, Cameroon, Ghana, Gabon, the Congo, Haiti, and elsewhere are stranded as they're being denied entry to the United States. I'd like now to welcome Nana Jamfi. Nana, welcome. Greetings. Always good to be on with you, Margaret. Yes, Amir. Uh, Nana Jumphy, attorney, consultant, educator, activist, the executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as BAJI, and the president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. As a human and civil rights attorney and advocate for over two decades, Attorney Jamfi, affectionately called the people's attorney by the community she serves, has consistently and zealously sought to address the social justice challenges affecting the community community through legal advocacy and in the trenches involvement in community causes and activism. Nan is also a commissioner for the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. So there you go, um, Nana. Let's start with the situation of um, African uh, uh, migrants and immigrants. And uh, there's also a major event coming up that will focus on this particular issue on Thursday, January 28th. Nana Jamfi. Yes, pleased to talk about this topic. Not talked about enough, but Margaret, we always can count on you to talk about black immigrants um, generally in terms of this country, but also what the work that has been done with regard to black immigrants coming through Mexico. And so we, Baji has put out a report with UMUMI, which is in English, the Institute for Women in Migration, based in Mexico, called There is a Target on Us. And we'll be doing a report briefing January 28th, this uh, Thursday, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. You can go to Baji.org, B-A-J-I.org, to get more information and also to register for that um, briefing. As you know, Margaret, we have been working on this issue and in terms of Baji for years now. I mean, I've, I'm looking at resources that show Baji going into Mexico to talk about black migrants as far back as 2009. But more recently, in 2019, there was a surge in the number of black migrants, particularly migrants from the continent of Africa, that came up through South America, some coming from as far as Brazil, you know, going from the continent to Brazil, some um, Ecuador, and making the treacherous journey through jungle, you know, through uh, detention centers all the way up, um, being beaten, being robbed, some being raped, etc., but making that journey all the way to Mexico, only to then be detained at their largest detention center, Siglio 21, which, which translates into Century 21, um, where we learned that African migrants had formed an assembly and were engaging in protests there of their treatment. So that's what got Baji first re you know, reintroduced to what was happening with black migrants at the southern border of Mexico. We had already been doing work, as others had, in, at the northern border, at the Tijuana area, um, supporting black migrants there, 
both Caribbean um, and African and um, assisting them with giving workshops and providing um, uh, food and other necessities um, because, as you indicated, they were basically being trapped in Tijuana, not being allowed to come into the country or coming in, you know, four or five people per week when there were thousands of people that were trapped there. And then we learned about what was happening in the southern border and began to um, take trips to the southern border to assist those asylum seekers that were there, uh, both with, you know, tents so they could have places to stay because of the rampant discrimination. They couldn't find housing to assist with uh, the work that they were doing um, with other humanitarian organizations that are at the southern border, but also to provide them with some legal assistance, particularly in preparation for what they may need to deal with um, in the United States, and to see what we could do about their condition with respect to their detention, um, imprisonment, torture in some cases um, there uh, at the southern border. And so this work is, in terms of what we're talking about in this report, is really steeped in the many trips that our legal manager, Sian Gurmu, who really took on this work, um, young sister who's brilliant um, and, and hardy, fabulous, um, a great leader. The work that she did, she made over 10 trips before the pandemic started um, to southern Mexico, to Tapachula, to be of assistance to our siblings there. I've made some trips as well. Uh, as going as far into the, the Central America as Guatemala to understand what our people have been going through as they travel from South, you know, through Central America, from South America into Mexico. And it has just been, you know, harrowing, heartbreaking. But we really see, Margaret, just the resilience and the resistance uh, of our people in what is, uh, has been done and what is happening with African asylum seekers in particular, but black migrants generally as they go through Mexico trying to come to the United States. Right, and then in the United States, I'm looking at an, an article here that is just horrible uh, to read of, of African asylum seekers being shackled, beaten, uh, bullied. Um, one uh, Cameroonian singer who tripped and fell, uh, armed guards put him, pulled him across the tarmac, uh, sat on his back and put, put him in a sack and then dumped him on the plane. I mean, look, this is just just outrageous, and I, I encourage our listeners to dig a little deeper and do some research on this. But Nana, before you go, um, this is related actually, because it has to do with the ongoing devaluation of, of black lives, which is what's happening with the anti-black um, uh, sentiment. Uh, against African immigrants, but also you are a commissioner on this International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. And that is something that's ongoing uh, now that our listeners uh, hopefully will be able to um, be able to listen in. Tell us a bit about that, Nana. Right. So I'm not actually a commissioner, but I'm on the steering committee that created okay. the commission um, in my position as um, the president of NCBL. The commissioners are judges from all over um, the world, other than the United States, and well-represented is the Caribbean. You'll, you'll, you'll be glad to hear, Margaret, well-represented, um, as well as the continent um, and Europe, um, Asia, 
And these commissioners are hearing from family members and attorneys in some of the cases that we know. So we've had, you know, the, the case of Breonna Taylor. We've had the case of George Floyd, Jacob Blake, um, the case of Botham Jean um, and others, and some folks that we may not be as familiar with but are no less compelling. It is Again, just powerful testimony, not just about what happened to these individuals, but also about how it its effect on the communities, the systemic nature of the impunity of the police, the collaboration, what one of the commissioners called the, uh, the solidarity of the wicked um, between police unions, the police and politicians that allow for there's us to have no accountability. And so folks can go to inquirycommission.org, inquirycommission.org. You can see hearings that have already happened. You can see the schedule for hearings that are coming up. I encourage folks to please, you know, watch live if you can, but if not, at least go back and um, look at the videos. They also have transcripts for each of the hearings that you can read very important in this time period. And I just want to end, you know, with this piece sort of tying them together in terms of the present context. The changes that the Biden administration has made and have talked about, those changes actually benefit very few black people. Very, there are not that many black migrants that are benefiting. 76% of black migrants are deported on criminal grounds. And if you look, Margaret, at the executive orders and these policies, they all require you to pass a background check in order for you to benefit. They uh, definitely continue the families, not felons, that the Obama administration was engaged in. They definitely continue the good immigrant, bad immigrant um, narrative that we've seen be so devastating to our communities before. So, you know, it's not quite the end of the whiz where we're climbing out of the outfit singing, can you see a brand new day? Um, the witch is still living and the, the flying monkeys are still around. And we see that even in the racial equity uh, uh, EOs and policies that have come up, that when it comes to the issues that are really impacting black people, the violence to our communities, the separation of our families, the issues of poverty, the issues of inequality with respect to access, that the tip of the iceberg has not even been touched. And I think it behooves all of us, as, while we're excited about um, Trump being out of office, to not lose sight of the vision of the world that we want to live in and to recognize that, you know, the Biden administration has not offered us uh, yet uh, what was worth all of the effort put into to put the administration into office, we've got to hold them accountable and not lose, you know, take our eyes off the prize. Okay, well, Nana Jumphy, and again, um, correcting, Nana is a steering uh, committee member for the International Commission of Inquiry and Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. And she's also president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers and a faculty member of its Law Enforcement Accountability uh, Project, in addition to being executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, in addition to being a mom and a community activist. Nana Jumpy, <laughs> um, a lot you're carrying there. Thank you so much for joining us and you stay well and safe now. 
Thank you. You too, Margaret. You know, I'm just trying to be like you, Margaret. Thank you so much. <laughs> All righty. Uh, take very good care. We are going to wrap our show up now. Um, remembering uh, Rudy Salas, who is a founding member of the Chicano R&B band Tierra, who passed away on December 29th. Uh, 2020. And here to speak with us, I'd like to welcome his brother, Steve Salas, co-founder and lead singer of Tierra, a Latin uh, R&B band originally from Los Angeles, California. And his brother, Rudy Salas, played guitar and has been a major part of the East Side music scene, East Side of to Los Angeles, California, since the mid-1960s. Steve Salas, um, we're very sorry for your loss, but thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Uh, how are you doing this morning, Margaret? But, uh, you know, tell us about the significance, because this was what, what you all were do, um, have done with Tierra, really uh, critical in terms of putting East Side music from Los Angeles on, on the map, but also the kind of R&B that uh, you were doing and, and, and getting to perform at, at Carnegie Hall. Just give us a few highlights and tell us also a bit about your brother and in particular what you miss about him now. Well, you know, the funny thing about my brother is that he was like the strongest man I've ever met in my life. Uh, this thing came as such a surprise, not just to me, but to everyone that's met him through the years. He was like almost indestructible. And, uh, you know, it just it just totally shocked everyone. Um, not only being the, the, the talent that he was uh, as far as a, a guitar player, a singer, and a songwriter, but he was also the leader of the band, very good at management. But he was also a very, very, very kind and gentle man when you got to know him, you know. So uh, he stood for a lot, a lot of things. And um, um, the band Tierra itself, we took our name from the, from out of the, the, the movement, the Movimiento Chicano movement. And that's why we called the band Tierra uh, rather than call it, you know, any other name of Salas or whatever, because uh, we felt we were an extension of that movement. And uh, so, again, we are very, very in touch with uh, with the civil rights movement from the 60s on out. My dad was a, a mural, one of the first Chicano muralists. Uh, my mom was a singer. So we are very involved in that. And, and Rudy uh, took it upon himself to run this band. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't really believe the outpouring of love that uh, people have shown, the support. It's unbelievable. And uh, this Carnegie Hall thing, we were the first Chicano band ever to play at Carnegie Hall back in 1981. And... Uh, and that's, you know, uh, something that we will never forget. And um, every moment, Rudy, every moment you're on my mind, you know. Yeah, and from what I've read, I mean, every musician who was near uh, New York City at the time worth their name and salt, they showed up at Carnegie because they, they knew the importance of what they were going to hear. And, you know, Steve, the, the work you and Rudy did, you know, on the show we talk about the interrelationship between art and politics, but the work that you all did, you know, looking back at the historic, the, the student walkouts at Chicano, Moratorium, what happened with the, with the killing, I I think the killing of the uh, LA Times uh, journalist uh, Ruben uh, Salazar. So you all have always remained, you know, very, very close and very true to your community, while at the same time making incredibly beautiful music. We're going to play some of it and, and as part of our outro today. So um, just, you know, share some some final words for us for for the young musicians and young folks uh, who are, who are listening right now, who perhaps want 
to be artists, but they also want to be activists and be political. Just a quick final well, thought you, from you. Know, you. A funny thing, my mom prophesied when we were little kids. She said one day, Mijo, you know, to, you know our son, my son, uh, you guys will sing at Carnegie Hall. And then we were about 10 or 12 years old at the time, <laughs> and it came true. And it came true, what, 20 years later. And I think the whole point here is that if you have a dream, if you have a passion, follow that passion. Don't let anything get in your way because if, if you're passionate about something, you're going to be good at it because you're going to take, take the time to do it. And don't forget where you came from. Remember, si se puede. It's a term that stands for everyone. Yes, you can. Si se puede. And it stands for every, every walk of life, you know. And um, if you keep that in mind, yes, you can be successful in whatever you, whatever you try as long as you have passion for it. You know, and uh, we are very, very lucky, but we worked very, very hard. And my brother Rudy, being the leader of the band, was one of those people that wasn't going to take no. He just pushed and pushed, and I just love him to death for it. You know, oh, wrong choice of words. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, yeah. uh, I was very lucky to have him in my life, you know, and uh, every minute, every minute I think about it, you know. Well, we were all very lucky to have his music and yours and our sympathy to um, his his uh, stepdaughter, Cressy, um, Johanna Alvarado Salas, his wife. Uh, um, what I read in the L.A. Times, he had just celebrated, they had just celebrated their 23rd uh, wedding anniversary. So we know that you and the entire family really devastated. So we appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to to join us and, um, you know, early songs, you know, like Zoot Suit Boogie and uh, oh, Body yeah. Sweet and, and remember all of that. And and I also yeah. must say, I do want to thank uh, Ron uh, Baca, who's like, kind of like our, our poet here on uh, out of the east side of Los Angeles uh, for uh, putting me in touch I'm with sorry. you. Sure, go ahead. I just want to say, uh, before he passed away, we have begun working on our first Salas Brothers project. All these years, we, uh, we were doing Estiar or other groups, and we were finally going to come back full circle and do a, a, a project as the Salas Brothers, which is how we started. So uh, we're actually in the middle of working on some songs. So we will be releasing in the next, uh, I don't know, a few weeks. Uh, two songs that we have started working on as the Salas Brothers. So uh, in case you people out there uh, are interested, uh, we will... Uh, put out a couple songs that Rudy actually wrote, and we already started recording on them. So uh, look for that. You know, that'll be like a novelty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, please, and, and keep us posted so we could let our listeners know uh, when that happens. Again, our uh, sympathy to you. Thank you so very much, uh, Steve Thank Salas, you, for joining us. I, I, I All the really best. appreciate that. Thank you very much. Right, take heart there. All righty, we are out of time. We we want to play some of Tierra's music, which perhaps we could start right now as I'm doing my outro and, and thanking our team today. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to Pacifica Radio Archives archives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all, please stay safe.